G'day. It's great to be with you to spend some time unpacking God's Word from Philippians chapter 1. As always, it's helpful to have your Bible open, but before we dive into the passage, I'd like to introduce the sermon. I think it's a very human thing for us to plan for our future, to catch a vision of where we would like to be, of who we would like to become, and then to plan our path. But there's also a radical uncertainty to human life. And this is something that most of us are not comfortable with. But few of us would deny it. I'm sure you may have heard the paraphrase of a line from a Robbie Burns poem. The best laid plans of mice and men oft go awry. Now, this is not a new insight and it's probably not very surprising to any of us. Way back 900 BC, the teacher wrote these words in the book of Ecclesiastes. He wrote, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. Nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favour to the learned. But time and chance happens to them all. Now as people we have a deep need for a sense of control. We would love to be able to plan out our lives so we can live comfortably, painlessly, achieving each of our goals, fulfilling our ambitions until we die at an old age, painlessly slipping off this mortal coil. But we know life's not like that. Stuff happens that upsets our plans and so often suffering is the result. So how do we react? Now there's a few standard patterns and perhaps you can pick one that you might be prone to. The first are those who go into controlling mode. Some of us react to uncertainty by spending more energy and effort trying to determine the course of events. But we become manipulative, overbearing, but also anxious and fearful. Now, some of us are, are crushed by these things. We react by despairing. We've tried and failed to control things before. Things are out of our control and we just want to curl up into that fetal position. We may become morose, even depressed. We may develop an identity as a victim and try and use that as a lever to exert a level of control. And then there's a third common approach, which makes sense, especially when you see how unattractive and unsuccessful the other two options are. And that's the, the careless option. We throw up our hands in the air, whatever. We give, give up on planning anything. We go with the flow, we just take it as it comes, we sit loose to the future. We make no plans, we take no responsibility. But none of these are particularly good options. Can there be another way? Now, does faith in God actually offer us a different and perhaps better option? We're now going to have the Bible reading and then we'll come back after that. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, 
most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, thanks for that, Sharon. Now, I just want to make a brief comment before we dive in. We're going to be talking this morning about the topic of suffering, which is a really difficult issue to address. Not only because it's a complex issue, but more importantly, it is a personal issue. It's never just abstract or theoretical. It is real, personal and specific. Also, the online environment makes this a bit more challenging, but I'll try hard. I'll recommend some other resources that you can take uh, to take you further uh, than we are able to do in this brief sermon. Also, please remember that you can always contact Colin through the communication card or by the phone if there are issues that you want to discuss. Suffering is universal. We all suffer. Those we love suffer in big ways and small ways. We know that we live in a broken world. Now, Paul Tripp, in his book simply entitled Suffering, summarises our situation. He writes, We live in a broken world where people die, food decays, wars rage, governments are corrupt, people take what isn't theirs and inflict violence on one another, spouses act hatefully towards each other, children are abused instead of protected, people slowly die of starvation or die suddenly from disease. Sexual and gender confusion lives, drugs addict and destroy, gossip destroys reputation, lust and greed control hearts, bitterness grows like a cancer, and the list could go on and on. The Bible doesn't pull any punches. At every turn, it informs and warns us about the nature of the world. Scripture works to prepare us not so that we would live in fear, but so that we would be ready for all the things we will face. Now, what this passage teaches us from Philippians is a part of that preparation. It helps us prepare our hearts so that when reality derails, we are prepared. Three points this morning. Roadblocks, the unstoppable God, and radical confidence. Roadblocks. What are the roadblocks? What gets in the way of us looking to the future with confidence? What is it that means that life doesn't always or perhaps ever work out the way we plan? 
We aim for one place, we find ourselves in another. Now in our passage this morning, we see two main roadblocks, circumstance and sin. And these so often lead to a third, suffering. But more on that later. Circumstance. Now this letter to the Philippians is written by Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles commissioned by the Lord Jesus to proclaim the gospel to the nations. And in Romans 15 verse 20, we read his personal aim is to break new ground, to proclaim the gospel where it has not been heard. Now, it's fair to say that Paul had big plans. You'd find it pretty easy to assume that God would bless these plans. You know, grant him a long life, lots of opportunity, travel the empire, preach the gospel of Christ. Yes? Yeah, well, not really. Uh, Here in Philippians 1, Paul speaks of what has happened to him. He mentions his chains and the palace guard. He's most likely under house arrest in Rome, as Luke records for us in Acts 28. And so here he is, confined to a house, under guard at all times, all his plans on hold, perhaps permanently. We'll see next week that there's a very real chance that his appeal to Caesar might end up with a death sentence. And these circumstances are pretty much beyond his control. We understand this, don't we? We've been reminded of this vividly recently. So many plans upended by a virus. For education, for work, for holidays, parties, relationships, all the plans of life, plans in almost every area of life, at the very least put on hold by circumstance. But circumstance is not the only roadblock. Sin. Our passage also speaks of sin. So why was Paul in prison? Well, through no real fault of his own. He hadn't broken any law. You'll find the details in the last one third of the book of Acts. Paul was the victim of the envy and plotting of others. The religious authorities in Jerusalem, they didn't like what he was teaching. And so they set out to oppose him. They sought to get rid of him. First, they stir up a mob and then they agree to an assassination plot. And then they use the judicial processes of the Roman state. Because of their sinful antagonism, Paul literally spends years in custody. First of all, in Judea. And then after he appealed to have Caesar rule on his case, years more in Rome. But it doesn't stop there. Paul writes that even in Rome, there are some who are seeking to stir up trouble for him while he's imprisoned. And bizarrely, they're Christians and they do this by preaching Christ. Now, this is somewhat confusing. What is he talking about? Now, it's clear that Paul regards them as Christians. Verse 14, he includes them in a group he refers to as brothers and sisters. He tells us in verse 18 that they are proclaiming Christ, and so their message must at least have retained the essential elements of the Christian gospel. They are not false teachers. So what's the issue? 
Simply, I believe it's an issue of motivation, not message. Probably these people are seeking to win over others, not only to Christ, but to their faction, which seems to have been in opposition to Paul. Now, let me give you a totally fictitious example. I want you to imagine a church down the road led by pastors whose motivation is simply to have a bigger church than yours. They want the reputation that is bigger than yours. They want to be known more widely than you are. And they preach the gospel, but their motivation is to make sure that their church is bigger than yours. The issue is not the message. They preach the message of forgiveness of life through faith in Christ, but the motivation. Now, it appeals that while Paul is hobbled by house arrest, these opponents have seized the opportunity to build their faction at the expense of Paul, and they're probably having a dig at him along the way. And you can imagine to be sinned against like this would hurt. We get this, don't we? All of us have been sinned against. We are sinners living with sinners. It's inevitable that this will happen in small ways as well as large ways. We've faced antagonism, opposition, injustice, abuse. Some of us have suffered horribly at the hands of others and have significant scars inflicted by them. But sometimes, if we're honest, we can think of other times when it is not the sins of others but our sin that derail us. We are the ones who make a mess of things for ourselves. It's our selfishness, our pride, our envy, our sin. And so often the consequence of our own sinful choices come back to bite us. Proverbs 26:27 wisely tells us, whoever digs a pit will fall into it. Circumstance and sin. That of others, as well as our own, seem to be roadblocks to blessing. We see a future that we want. We plan, we work, and then stuff happens. So how do we react? How did Paul react? What does God offer? And this brings us to our next point, the unstoppable God. Now, I don't think any of us would imagine that Paul planned to be where he is. This is not plan A, B or C, or perhaps even Z for Paul. So how does he react? Paul sees no roadblock to God's purpose in his situation, either through the circumstances beyond his control or the sinful actions of others against him. In verse 12, he writes these words. What has actually happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel, he writes. He is convinced that God is at work for good. Verse 18, Paul actually says that he's rejoicing. He's not stoically accepting, but rejoicing. How? Well, Paul is utterly confident that our God is the sovereign Lord, ruling over everything, 
including circumstance and sin. Paul Tripp again. Scripture makes it very clear that God is in absolute control of the world that he created and the lives of the people he placed in it. We don't live under the dictates of impersonal scientific forces. We don't live under the sovereign control of the forces of evil. We live in a world that's been terribly broken by sin, but still sits under the power and authority of the one who created it. You may not see his hand, and it may be very hard to accept that what you had to endure has come under God's watch. But scripture is clear about the nature and extent of his rule. And the Apostle Paul, he can see God's hand at work. Verse 13. It's become clear through the whole palace guard and to everyone else that he is in chains for Christ. The mission continues and the gospel is penetrating even the imperial palace. Verse 14, he tells us that because of his chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become more confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul can see God at work to fulfill his purpose and to bring his blessing, even in his situation. And so he rejoices. His joy doesn't come from his circumstance. It comes from his delight in the sovereign Lord and the fact that nothing, no circumstance, no sin will stop God from achieving his purpose. So we've seen Paul's conviction. God planned Paul's imprisonment. His own testimony records that Christ was preached through the whole palace guard and beyond. The church was emboldened to speak. And in his predicament, he rejoiced. God's plans, Paul sees, were being enacted. Now, does the rest of Scripture bear this out? Yes. Now, you probably recall the story of Joseph from the Old Testament, or at least from the musical. In brief, a man hated by his brothers who planned to murder him. At the last minute, they sell him as a slave into Egypt, and he spends years there. Having been unjustly accused, he ends up in prison. He comes out of prison and courtesy of some dream interpretation, which predicts seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Pharaoh appoints him as 2IC. And so when his brothers come from Canaan to purchase food in the famine, there's a reconciliation between them and Joseph. However, when Jacob, their father, is dying, the brothers are afraid that Joseph is now going to seek revenge. But in Genesis 50, he reassures them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God's sovereign purposes decreed that Joseph would go into slavery and prison, face injustice and sin, so that his purposes to save many lives would be achieved. God's purpose didn't excuse their intention, but it isn't blocked by it. 
Now, even more confronting is what the Apostle Peter says about God's purpose to bring blessing through the suffering and death of his son. Speaking to the crowd on the day of Pentecost, he says this about Jesus. He says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. What Acts 2 tells us is that God planned the betrayal, torture and death of his son. The scripture records that through his death and resurrection, God brings fulfillment to the promise to bring blessing instead of curse, to achieve reconciliation and offer forgiveness to all who trust in his name. The sovereign Lord simply determines our path and guarantees his future. Paul Tripp says, he says, the fact that God is in control tells us there is divine reason and purpose to all we face. This is both incredibly comforting, but incredibly difficult, especially for those of us who the wounds inflicted by others are deep or recent. Some will back away from it. They object that God could not possibly plan these things. He allows them, and then he works in them to achieve some kind of good. But this leaves us with a less than biblical God, a God who could act but chooses not to, a God who can only weep with us and then patch together a bit of a plan for blessing, a plan B or C or Z, rather than the God of Scripture who works sometimes in ways that we may never understand through circumstance and sin and suffering to achieve his sovereign purposes. We have a God who through the suffering and pain of his son gives the final answer to suffering and pain. He guarantees his blessed future to be brought about on the day of Christ as the book of Revelation records. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. We may not see the immediate results of God's plan in our pain. We may not be able to look like Paul did and see the consequences unfold. But do not let this make us doubt what we know from God's word. Spurgeon, the great English preacher, said this. He said, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. So where to from here brings us to our last point. We need to recognise that what the Bible teaches is that we have a God who is in control. This is what the Bible teaches. For some of us, we struggle to grasp this, but it shouldn't surprise us. We are very finite. We are limited by our capacity and our moment. Don't make the mistake 
of working from your experience to interpret Scripture. Use the Scriptures to interpret your experience. Study the Word. Scripture is simply saturated with the idea that God is sovereign. A bit later, I'll also recommend some other resources. We need to reorientate. We need to reject a too small vision of God. A God who weeps but who cannot act. A God who sympathises but these situations are beyond his control. A God who does not rule in our suffering but can only kind of help us to mitigate some of the effects. We need to reorientate our hearts to the vision of the biblical God and what he sees as good. We need to see that he has committed his sovereign power to finish the work that he began in us in conversion. He will use every means to bring us more and more to reflect the image of Christ. And lastly, we need to rejoice as Paul rejoiced. We need to rejoice not in our sufferings, but rejoice in the fact that God is the sovereign Lord and there is nothing beyond his control. Rejoice that we have a God who can minister to us in our suffering because he is Lord over it. He can comfort us in our distress. And the one through whom the death and suffering of his son has brought a definitive end to sin, to evil and pain. We need to rejoice that nothing, no sin or circumstance can block God's plan to bless. We need to rejoice that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus, when he will present you pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to his praise and glory.